I'll go home as a beggar and never be your wife. Hi, I'm Mary. And I'm Katie. And this is the Housewife Did It. True crime edition. So I do have a couple of real-time true crime things for you. One of them I would love to cover in the future. I honestly Um, was thinking if we wanted to do like a bonus episode on it sometime soon, like before we really know everything, that'd be kind of sick. Yeah. Um, So YouTuber Ruby Frankie was arrested for suspected child abuse. Much of the satisfaction of viewers who have been watching her document this abuse and neglect of her children on YouTube for several years. The family's channel was taken down a couple of months ago with no explanation, but in the past, Ruby and her husband had documented denying their children food, taking their beds, pushing them, and destroying their personal belongings, amongst other things. Mm -hmm. Today, I did see um, an addition to this news where in court, Ruby allegedly said that she was punishing her children because one of them was sexually assaulting the others. So she punished all of them? Yeah. Okay. I guess. That's not helpful either way. Yeah. Second thing makes me sad because Stephen Hyde was my favorite character on that 70s show. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Hyde would never do this. Mm -hmm. But Danny Masterson of that 70s show was sentenced to 30 years life in prison for two counts of rape. What makes this even sadder is that Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis allegedly wrote letters of support for him, claiming he is a role model and an exceptional friend. Did they claim that he did not do those things? I think the letters are meant to be like in place of like character witness things. Right. Um, like Because they couldn't like physically be there and they said like he's a role model in his community that he's an exceptional person and i think like i think either they're trying to claim like he wouldn't have done this because he has always maintained that he didn't or that they're saying like maybe he did do this but he's a good person so go easy on him what makes me like particularly upset about that is ashton kutcher's work with um the sex trafficking uh like stopping sex trafficking mm-hmm I mean, it just makes me sad. Yeah. I'm glad that he's away. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, I think a Ruby Frankie bonus episode would be fun, but maybe we could do I it, like, do. just YouTube. YouTube special. Yeah. You have I think, to come find us on YouTube. I think it's so interesting because of how well-documented it was. Mm-hmm. Like, that's all I see on TikTok is videos of her, like, talking about how her child's teacher called and said she didn't bring lunch. And she's, like, she's five years old. She's responsible for packing her own lunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and then she put it on the internet? Yeah. I saw people, I have no evidence to back this up, but I did see people say, we need to look at the LeBrant family next. We do. I I mean, I, I, mean, I, I will not claim... Of- to have any any like yeah. information but i'm just saying that's what the, the people are saying. i have seen a lot of people um talk about the way that they use everly as like a third parent mm-hmm. 
But I think that's the worst thing I've ever seen yeah. alleged about them. Yeah. But yeah. All right. So we're going to get into my case. Um, I'm going to start with a content warning for sexual assault, suicidal ideation, and mutilation. Um, and I'm going to give you a prologue today. Okay. So. Um, today, I want to bring you a case that stood out to me from the moment I heard it for several reasons. Um, I first heard this case on an episode of Crime Junkie, and when I got to the end of the episode, they mentioned the name and career of the victim's husband. And I was like, that name sounds so familiar. So I looked him up, and I realized he was someone that I had studied in college and had seen in like professional development sessions because he is a very successful child psychologist. Okay. And um, he's credited with a lot of social emotional learning strategies that are used in like classrooms today, including mine. And so a lot of teachers know his name. They like he's referenced often, he's used often in PDs. But I had known about him and I had never known that this had happened to his wife mm. so I, and I don't think a lot of people do so today I'm going to tell you the story of Arliss Perry okay are you ready yeah okay in the early morning of October 13th 1974 at around 6 a.m. Bruce Perry heard a knock at the door of his home on Stanford University's campus he had been frantically awaiting news of where his young wife, Arliss Perry, may have been when she didn't come home the night before. He opened the door to find police, and they were shocked to see Bruce on the other end of the threshold, covered in blood. What? Mm-hmm. I feel like we just picked right. this story up in the middle. Yes. Okay, it's what time of day? 6 a.m. Okay, 6 a.m. Bruce opens the door at his home at Stanford? Yes. He lives on campus? Yes. Okay. But he's waiting to find his wife. Yes. He has called the police because he's worried about his wife. They they come, they knock on the door, they open the door, or he opens the door, and he's covered in blood. Does he know he's covered in blood? Yes. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> so, I started with that for a reason, because I think that's the craziest part of the story somehow. Yeah. Arliss Perry had moved to the Stanford University campus from Bismarck, North Dakota, with her high school sweetheart-turned-husband, Bruce, when she was 19 in August of 1974. So, like, two months ago. Okay. Bruce was a sophomore pre-med student and was able to secure a special type of housing with Stanford for married students. So, they lived in an apartment on campus that was designated for married students. Okay. Arliss was working as a receptionist at a local law firm. Um, on the evening of October 12th, at around 11.30 p.m., Arliss and Bruce got into an argument over their car's tire pressure and whose responsibility it was to change it. Okay. They were taking a late-night walk around campus to drop off some mail when Arliss told Bruce that she wanted to take some time to pray before they continued their discussion. This was, like, normal for her. So... One of the things that uh, was pointed out a lot about Arliss is that she was deeply religious, and that was part of why her and Bruce had gotten married. She had been living in Bismarck their freshman year of college, okay. and she was going to school. Um, she didn't end up 
staying in college, but long distance in the 70s was very difficult. Uh, you couldn't FaceTime or text, and long distance calls were few and far between. So they decided that they wanted to move in together, but she would not move in with him unless they were married. So they got married and moved to Stanford so that he could continue college, but she got this job at a law firm instead. And she was very involved in the church on campus. So it was pretty normal for her to be like, you know what? I don't want to continue this conversation right now. I'm going to go to the church. So she walked to the Stanford Memorial Church nearby to pray. And Bruce walked back to their apartment approximately half a mile from the church. He waited for Arliss to come home as he tried to cool down and rationalize their argument from earlier. According to the episode of Crime Junkie entitled Murdered Arliss Perry, Bruce was thankful for some time alone in the apartment so that he could plan out his next points before Arliss <laughs> returned and they continued the discussion. So he's like planning the fight in his head, you know. Fair. You know the drill. Yeah. Um, but he knew that the church was supposed to be locked up at around midnight by campus security. So a little after midnight, he went by the church to check on Arliss and found all the doors were locked. Which... He thought maybe he would have run into her walking home, but he didn't see her. So he just, he went back. He's like, maybe I missed her. He went back to the apartment. She wasn't there. By 3 a.m., Arliss had still not returned home, and Bruce was getting increasingly worried. He called the Stanford police to report her missing, letting them know where she had been heading when he last saw her. Santa Clara County Sheriff's officers went to the church to search for her, but found that all of the outer doors were locked and there were no signs of Arliss outside. At 5.45 a.m., a campus security guard named Stephen Crawford called the Stanford Police Department, where he used to be a police officer, to let them know he had found the body of a woman in the church near the front altar. That night? That morning. Okay. When police arrived, they found Arliss Perry lying face up with her hands folded over her chest holding a church candle between her breasts. Okay. An ice pick was found sticking out of the back of her head with the handle broken off and nowhere to be found. A what? An ice Police... pick? Mm-hmm. Okay. Police also believe Arliss had been strangled, but they were able to, ter- to determine that her official cause of death was the stab wound to her head. Okay. Arliss was naked from the waist down with her jeans folded across her legs in a diamond shape. So I'm thinking, like, thigh, the thighs of the jeans were open and then bent back inward at the knees and connected back at the ankles. So they're off, but just laying on top of her? They're off, but they're on top of her. Okay. Yeah. In a diamond shape. Okay. And her shirt had been unbuttoned and splayed open. Okay. And that's why the candle was there. Lastly, police found that a three-foot candle, think about, like, the kind of candles that, like, altar servers carry in Mm -hmm. um had been inserted into her vagina was it still there or they like found okay there was a kneeling pillow from the church close to arliss's body and investigators found semen on it although there were no signs of sexual assault other than the candle so when police saw bruce perry on the other side of the door with blood dripping down his chest Mm-hmm. They were sure they had caught him in the act of cleaning up after murdering his wife. Mm-hmm. He knew it looked bad, so he assured them that he was cleaning up from a nosebleed. Okay. He explained that he was prone to nosebleeds when nervous, 
and had been struggling to stop this one since he had reported Arliss missing. Hmm. So, like, for, like, two and a half hours, his nose has been bleeding, he says. Okay. Um, police took samples of the blood from Bruce's shirt with his full cooperation and were able to determine that it was, in fact, Bruce's nasal blood, and he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. Okay. I... My favorite part of the Crime Junkie episode about this was they were laughing. They are like, that is the dorkiest thing I've ever heard. Like, that your yeah. nose is just bleeding for two and a half hours because you're worried about your wife. It's our mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, I wanted to start with that because I think that's so crazy that, like, he had apparently that much blood on him. And yeah. it really just was, like, freak nosebleed. And I was like, I, like, I was like what are the odds that you have the world's worst nosebleeds. Yeah. And your wife is murdered. Yeah, I mean, I've not really heard of them being, I mean, I guess it makes sense, but I've not really heard of them being, like, induced by stress. But, I mean, he's probably not even shocked. He's probably like, fuck this again. Like, every time I'm stressed. Yeah. (sighs) I will say, nosebleeds can be induced by, like, changes in temperature. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you're someone whose body temperature rapidly changes when you're stressed, yeah, maybe, yeah, he's a pre-med. He was a pre-med student. I was not, so he knows things. Yeah. So police turned back to the campus security guard who had found Arliss, Stephen Crawford. They wanted every detail he could give. He told them that he was running a little late that evening and got to the church after midnight. He entered the church, intending to let everyone know it was time to lock up, but he found no activity inside, so he closed the door and locked it. Wait, who? The security guard. So he walked in the church? Yeah, so he said that he was running late that night. He usually gets there right at midnight. He got there a little after, and he went in, and he's like, okay, I'm locking up. He didn't, it's like, time to get out. Walk. There was no one there, so he just locked it and moved on. Okay. I mean, do we know, like, if he would have had view of her? Like, I, so... Is it, like, where the altar is, the sanctuary part is, like, closed? One, I think it was kind of dark. Okay. Maybe. Um, two, um, I think where she was, it would have been difficult to see her, like, because she was laying flat, and it was at the, like, opposite end of the church. Okay. I think that what he's saying is, like, what's normal for him is to look in, see if he sees anybody sitting in the pews. Right, okay. Nobody, he doesn't see any heads sit, t- popping out of the pews, so he's assuming it's empty. Mm, sure. Um, if I were a person who was trying to find refuge in a church and spend the night there, I would lay down in the pew. He's so not trying like, to spend the night there. Huh? Huh? She wasn't trying to spend the night there. I understand, but I'm saying it could be something... It doesn't have to be something as sinister as murder. He maybe should oh. walk through because someone could just be like, ooh, I want to crash here. Let me yeah. just duck under the pew. He should have. Sure. Um, he said it was typical for him to check back every few hours as he completed his security rounds. Like, he just kind of drove around campus and double-checked throughout the night. Okay. And he was on duty. Um, he checked like, double-checked the inside of the church? Or no, just... just, like, kind of going, like, and making sure everything is still locked up and, like, good. No suspicious activity outside. I smell some suspicious activity. I don't know. I'm not a campus security guard. 
I'm not suspicious of you. I'm suspicious of him. I know. He checked back around 2 a.m. and the doors were still locked. Mm -hmm. Um, Since everything appeared to still be in order, he went about his normal routine. He came back around to the church around 5.30 a.m. and found the west side door had been forcefully opened. Mm. He went inside to make sure everything was okay and said that initially he wasn't worried because it didn't appear any... He didn't appear anything had been stolen or messed with, but as he moved farther up the aisle of the church, he found the horrible scene of Arliss's murder. Mm-hmm. I don't like this. Someone did not kill I her at five thirty between two and five thirty. They did not I don't believe that. I could be convinced. But like she was not sitting in that locked church till two o'clock and then someone forced the doors open. And got her. So, why are the doors forced open, but nothing's touched? Someone forced the doors open and said, Shit, there's a dead lady in here. I'm leaving. Maybe. You never know. But also, if that's the case, like, keep in mind that she got to the church at 1130. Right, but... So, like, if someone did kill her between 2 and 5, where was she between 1130 and 2? That's what I'm saying. Is, like, when he was locking the doors... She was already dead. Like, yeah, had to have been. So why were was no door forced open at midnight or at mm-hmm. two? But it was at five thirty. Unless I mean, I guess people can come back to the crime, but like, maybe I just like don't know. Like, yeah, if you're breaking into a church and then you accidentally stumble upon a murdered lady, you might be like, never mind. I'm not gonna steal anything. I'm just gonna head back out. Yeah, I'll start there. They they did, like, continue to, like, investigate him. Like, they weren't, like, letting him go okay. based on this information he was giving. Okay. So investigators continued with what evidence they had. There was a partial palm print left on one of the candles found on Arliss's body. So they tested the print against Bruce Perry and Stephen Crawford, and it didn't match either of them. The what? Usually, the semen? The candle. Oh. Palm print. You froze. I will say, as a recovering altar server, you do typically not touch the candle. You touch, like, what's holding the candle. Mm -hmm. But someone has to put the candle in there. Yeah. They don't come like that. Yeah. So, it could have been anyone's palm print. Did they test the semen? Yes. I can wait. I can wait. I just wanted to know. Okay. I I do have this later on, but I, I mean, it doesn't give anything away. They tested the semen and it didn't match either of them. That's weird, Arliss girl. How'd you produce semen on your own? Because those are the only two options. Um, There were a few other people in the church the night Arliss was killed. No. Police were able to identify all but one patron. He was someone the other churchgoers didn't recognize, but described as having sandy blonde hair, medium build, was about 20 to 25 years old, and approximately 5 foot 10. Witnesses claimed to see him begin to enter the church around midnight when it was closing. So he was, like, walking around the church. My first thought was, it's probably Bruce. We know he came back to check on her. Mm-hmm. But then my second thought was, everyone that was in the church identified each other mm-hmm. and Arliss. So they probably know Bruce. And yeah. They know this guy. And when he came in, it was closed. Duh. Not closing. Yes. Correct. So. Okay. So this, coupled with the autopsy report, made police want to find the unknown man. 
Um, the autopsy revealed that Arliss was likely killed just after midnight, mm-hmm. the same time this man was seen attempting to enter the church. So the when same he's... time that Bruce... Do we know this? Like, when he's coming in, are these people saying they are, like, leaving? Like I think so. Like, the security guard said, hey, I'm locking up, and people are coming out, and they notice uh, the security him coming hadn't gotten there yet. Oh, yeah, because he's late. Yeah, so they, I think they, but, like, everyone knew that the church closes closed at midnight, so I think they were, like, leaving. Arliss hadn't started leaving yet, though. Okay. And then this man starts walking in that they don't know. Okay. So they think she was killed just after midnight, like, around the time that Bruce started to go to the church to check on Arliss, and right before the security guard locked it for the evening. Okay. Unfortunately, police were never able to identify the young blonde man, and the case eventually went cold. It remained open and was routinely reviewed by the cold case unit at the Santa Clara County District Attorneys and Sheriff's Offices, but no leads were panning out. I have a thought. Mm -hmm. Would there be any logical explanation for the door to be forced Mm -hmm. for someone to leave or no? Oh, I'm glad you said that because I did not put this in. He, what he said was that it looked like it had been forcefully opened from the inside. Ah. So okay. I'm glad you said that. Um, so, so, yes, that's the idea. So the person, probably this blonde man, was probably still in there when the security guard right. said, locked, anybody here? And he like just hid right. or whatever got locked in maybe she was already mm-hmm. dead or maybe she was just being like held i guess probably already dead yeah. but and then what he hung out for at least three hours yeah at least till after two so at least two hours okay okay got it um police were considering a possible link between arliss's murder and those of leslie marie perlov and janet ann taylor Leslie Marie Perlov was a 21-year-old graduate of Stanford University who was working at a law firm. Oh. Sound familiar? It does. Leslie went missing from Palo Alto, California on February 13th, 1973, so like a year and a half earlier. Her body was found three days later along the Stanford Dish hiking trail. Leslie was fully clothed and had been strangled with her own scarf. There were clear signs of sexual assault and semen was found on Leslie's body. Almost exactly a year later and about seven months before Arliss's murder, the body of 21-year-old Janet Ann Taylor was found in a roadside ditch near Sand Hill Road and Manzanita Way. She had last been seen on the campus of Kenyatta College where she was a student in Redwood, California, attempting to hitchhike her way back to her home in La Honda. Janet's murder was linked to Leslie's murder because her father, Chuck Taylor, was a famous coach and retired Stanford football player who at the time held an administrative position at Stanford University with their soccer team. So why does that link them? Because... Oh, just they're both connected to Stanford? Yeah. Okay, got it. Um, So it's clear to see why investigators, in my opinion, apparently not in your opinion, clear to see why investigators... We're considering the connection to Arliss's murder. Yeah, I just was like, what, does her dad know that first lady? But got it. It's just the Stanford connection. Yeah, I think, and I think Kenyatta, Kenyatta, I don't know. Spelled like Canada, but has an Inya. Was near Stanford. 
Okay. And so I think she was there often with her dad and stuff. In 2018, seminal fluid from Leslie's body was tested and matched to John Arthur Gatreau. And in 2019, DNA from the scene where Janet was found was also matched to Gatreau. However, it was not a match for the semen found at Arliss's murder. So is he just, like, someone who's in the system? Like, how did um, they know to test for that yeah. person? Okay. He was. Um, he had, I think he'd been arrested on a rape or something. Okay. Um, but yes. But he did not match the semen from Arliss's murder. Investigators also uncovered that someone at Stanford had taken a telephone listing under the name Bruce Perry. Okay. People from Arliss and Bruce's hometown of Bismarck had mistakenly called this number several times, and it got to a point where Arliss called this number herself to see what was going on and to speak to someone in the residence. It seemed, like, suspicious at the time that someone would take this listing out under Bruce's name. Mm-hmm. But Arliss explained the following to a friend after speaking to someone at the listed phone number. She said, quote, I had to laugh about your call to Bruce Perry. Mrs. Perry made the same mistake. I read that sentence like 25,000 times. I was like, you're Mrs. Perry. She meant Bruce's mom, to clarify. Oh, So she's saying Bruce's mom also called that number by mistake. Okay. But the strange part of it is that his name is not only Bruce Perry but it is Bruce D. Perry. And not only that, but it is Bruce Duncan Perry. I'm, I'm guessing that's Bruce's full name. Mm-hmm. And he attends Stanford University. And he just got married this summer. One thing, his wife's name is not Arliss. End quote. So mm-hmm. they thought it was super suspicious, but she called them to see, like, what? why the heck have you taken out a fake phone number in our name? She found out that it actually was someone who shared the name with her husband and almost the exact same life story as him. Mm-hmm. But his wife's name is not Arliss. Yeah, because so. it's your husband's second wife. Mm-hmm. He has a secret So after life. this letter at, at 20 years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> after this letter to Arliss's friend came to light, the suspicion regarding the phone number dissipated for some, but others still believed it was not a coincidence and that it was a sign that Arliss was targeted. Okay. Arliss's loved ones had told investigators that they were considering the possibility that Arliss had gotten on the bad side of the wrong people. As I mentioned before, Arliss was deeply religious and was rumored to have gone with a friend to preach to a satanic cult and try to convert them to Christianity. Okay. Some people speculated that the group she went to may have been one called the Children in New York. Do we know them? You're about to. Oh, okay. Let me take you in a different direction for a second. Let's go for a ride. In 1977, David Berkowitz was arrested and indicted for eight shootings. He confessed to six murders and seven attempted murders and implicated himself in many unsolved cases of arson in Brooklyn, New York. David Berkowitz was dubbed the Son of Sam because of a letter found at the scene of one of the murders. In it, he wrote, quote, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a Weemon hater. I am not. I, But I am a monster. I hate Weemon. I am the son of Sam. Weemon. I hate him. I, I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. 
Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked up in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I'm on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He had had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Okay, this next part, I'm supposed to read in a Scottish accent. So, please bear with me. Uh-oh. Ugh. Me it. It hurts, sonny boy. Why? That's how it's written. It's written in Scottish accent? It, it says, Ugh. Me hoot. It hurts, sonny boy. Nice. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in Our Lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The wee mon of queens are the prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life. Blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I do not want to kill any more. No, sir, no more, but I must. Honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's. To the people of Queens, I love you. And I will want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bank, bang, ugh. Yours and murder, Mr. Monster. Um, in a second letter. Oh, no. He wrote. Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in these recent and horrendous 44 caliber killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily, I read your column daily, and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night. Thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever. If I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Now, knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job? Remember, Miss Loria. Thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. The Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls, 
P.S. Inform all the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. J.B., please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Son of Sam. This guy is now. making me sad. I know. Now I know what you're thinking. He's ill. Yes, he is. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Um, We'll get into how ill in just a second. But what I was thinking when mm-hmm. I was writing this was people are not going to know what this has to do with Carlos Berry. No. This is a serial killer from Brooklyn, New York. And I have been talking about a murder in California that took place several years before his crime spree even began. And on the surface, it doesn't match up. David Berkowitz would have been 17 at the time that Arliss Perry was killed. Um, his MO was more often than not to shoot and run, not to strangle, stab, and mutilate after the fact. But investigators began looking into Berkowitz as a possibility based on the fact that he had been writing about Arliss's murder from prison. Um, but from prison, in, like, way after? Yes. Okay. In the margins of a book about himself he had written arliss perry hunted stalked and slain followed to california stanford university Hmm. investigative reporter maury terry claims that these notes about arliss's case were written completely unprompted that just like somebody saw it one day told someone else about it and they were like what the heck okay so when he was originally arrested David Berkowitz admitted to the eight Son of Sam shootings, claiming that his neighbor, Sam Carr's dog, had been controlling him and forcing him to go out at night to kill. In the 90s, however, prompted by some admittedly leading questions by Maury Terry, Berkowitz claimed that he had been initiated into a satanic cult called the Children, spearheaded by Sam Carr's two sons, John Wheat and Michael Carr. Okay. Some people believe that the Son of Sam letter that mentions John Wheaties, rapist and suffocator of young girls, is John Wheat Carr, the true son of Sam Carr. Okay. And that this cult, the children, is the one that Arliss went to preach to. Okay. This cult is kind of a tinfoil hat thing, but there is an entire Netflix documentary about it. So I wrote down some, like, compelling-ish pieces of information that might make it seem true. (coughs) I'm going to tell you a little about the cult. Okay. So, less than a year after Berkowitz was arrested, John Carr was found shot to death in North Dakota. Wait, start over? What? When? Less than a year after the son of Sam was arrested. 78. He was arrested in 77. So it was 78. Less than a year. Less than a year. Okay. Got it? Yeah. I lost it. Sorry. John Carr. One of the sons. No, I know what I was saying. I lost. No, I'm. No, I'm tracking. I'm trying to. Yeah. Okay. So John Carr was found shot to death in North Dakota. Okay. It was originally believed to be a suicide, but after finding out his link to the Son of Sam killings, investigators believed it might be a homicide. Um, his mysterious death is still unsolved. So, 
that's all I got. Cool. But people think that that's suspicious. About a year and a half later, Michael Carr passed away in a one-vehicle accident off of a New York City highway. Some people, including David Berkowitz, speculate that Michael was intentionally driven off the road by disgruntled cult members. Berkowitz claimed he was not surprised by either of the brothers' deaths in the same interview where he claimed that while he was present at the eight shootings in New York that he was arrested for, he was not the one to pull the trigger at almost any of them. So, so now in the 90s, he's backtracking on a lot of things. Okay. Instead, he claims he was working as a scout. And that this was, like, bigger than just him. Just to find the blood for Papa Sam. Mm-hmm. That's okay. all he was doing. That's it. He also said that the group had followed Arliss Perry home to California and committed a ritualistic murder after she attempted to convert their members. He said that. He was asked that, and he said yes. He said, that sounds fun. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Berkowitz told Maury Terry in an interview that when he joined the group, it was centered around witchcraft and black magic, and that he witnessed animal sacrifices, but that mostly they would just get high and sit around a circle of rocks and rap. I want us to think about the possibility, how likely is it that a group of white men were sitting around rocks in the 70s and rapping? Uh, In Brooklyn? In Brooklyn, yeah. Maybe likely. Did white people rap in the 70s? Probably not, like, publicly. (laughs) Okay. But I, I I, I don't know how likely, but I feel like in Brooklyn it'd be more likely than other places. (laughs) Yeah. But fair. He also said that he never imagined innocent people would be killed. Is it, like, proven that he wrote those letters, though? Like, that's not disputed? No. He definitely wrote them. Got it. Other than John and Michael Carr, he refused to give Maury Terry the names of any other members. However, in the Sons of Sam docuseries on Netflix, two other names are mentioned. The first is John Wieland. He was interviewed by a reporter about the cult... Um, he was, and not like in the, in the Netflix show, this, the, like the interviewer is telling this story. Okay. He says like, I interviewed him about the cult and he was very hesitant to talk about it because he was fearful of the repercussions of speaking out against the group. By the end of the week he had been interviewed, he had died by suicide. The interviewer? No, the, the, we member. Yeah. Got it. Another man known as John Paul. So we know of five members of this group and three of them are named John. Yeah. So another man known as John Paul did give a televised interview about being a member of the children. He claimed he was initiated in a group of about 40 in a cemetery and that they had to listen to the torture and killing of a dog. Like on a a tape or like... No, like, they were in the distance. They were doing it. Okay. I will say, I I, I don't know if this is true or not. Like I said, it's very conspiratorial. But I will say that David Berkowitz did kill Harvey, the dog who was controlling him. I mean... So. I feel like that makes sense, though. The 
the cold thing? No, that you would kill a dog that you're having oh, delusions yeah. about. <laughs> I will say, also, it is like an ongoing debate if David Berkowitz was legitimately mentally ill or if he was pretending to be mentally ill to excuse being a murderer. People okay. think that that um, the things he wrote and the things he said were things that he thought would make him seem crazy okay, and not things that he genuinely believed. Okay. I don't know what you do. I don't know. Well, I'd have to do more Son of Sam research because I don't know much, but I mean, it's very assuming that he wrote those letters, like if he wrote those letters before he was caught and like wasn't already trying to yeah. build up an the insanity plea, then, then he was ill. Yeah, um, the letters were a lot, and I I was like hesitant to put the letters in because I didn't want to like take this too far away from Arliss Perry. Mm -hmm. But one, they had like something that I wanted to reference in like proof of the cult, mm -hmm. but also the way he was connected to Arliss Perry was through writing notes, and he wrote a lot, and so I just wanted to like point out like he'd be mm -hmm. writing all the time. Yeah, and this is one of the things he wrote. Um, but anyway, so some people believe that this cult is real, but investigators never really took Maury Terry's theory seriously. Like they, they thought about it when they saw that note in the book, but they were pretty sure that it was just Maury Terry and David Berkowitz's way of trying to prove that the cult was real. So they continued the investigation with the cold case unit, and. They just kept waiting for another chance to test what they had or try other theories out. So whatever this group is that she, like, went and preached to, that's not verified mm -hmm. either? It's it's not even fully verified if she did that. Oh, okay. That was something that people from Bismarck were claiming she had told them she was going to do. Okay. With a friend, but they... They never, like, clarified if she definitely did do it or, like, when or who it was to or where okay. the group even was. People just think that it may have been this group. But they didn't the... think that until he put that in the book 20 years later. Yeah. Okay. Just I was just wondering. I didn't know people had said yeah. they had heard her mention this name, the children. No. Or if that was, like, a back working backwards they just like they were just like you know she said she was gonna go talk to that group mm -hmm. i wonder if they didn't like what she had to say yeah kind of thing um so in 2018 semen samples from arliss perry's murder scene were tested again Oof. yeah originally they had used the sample to rule out bruce perry and stephen crawford who were their top suspects since one was Arliss's husband and the other was the one who found her body in the church. They were hoping that the technology that tested DNA had advanced enough to possibly give them more accurate results. So this time, when they tested them again, they came back as a match to Stephen Crawford, what? the Stanford security guard who had found Arliss's body, who claimed to have locked and checked the church several times that night, and who had quit working at Stanford soon after Arliss's murder. How did they get it wrong? Just, like, it wasn't good enough? It just wasn't a good enough test, they think. Okay. 
Police believed that he had gone into the church shortly after midnight and saw that Arliss was alone inside. Then, locking the church doors, he snuck up behind her and stabbed her with the ice pick. They also believe that when Bruce came to check on her, it's likely that the murder was happening as he searched the perimeter of the church. Okay. Either while he was walking around the church or while he was walking to the church or while he was walking away from the church, but based on the timeline of events, they think he was around the area. So, armed with the DNA link to Crawford, police went to his home to arrest him. When they got there, he told them that he needed to go to his bedroom before they left. I think he said he needed to, like, put on his socks and shoes or something. And while he was in the back of the house, police heard a gunshot and ran in to find that Stephen Crawford had completed suicide. A short note was left, but it didn't say anything about Arliss Perry. Well, he probably did not have so, time. He had time to write something. <laughs> Some people believe Stephen Crawford saw an opportunity to commit a crime when he saw a young woman alone in a place she thought was safe. Mm-hmm. Others believe he was a member of the children and acted in representation of a satanic cult. Okay. Others still believe it's possible that Stephen Crawford is only guilty of leaving semen at the scene. He found and this dead woman and just whacked off. Commit the crime. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say who said that because they're hosts of a pretty big podcast and i think that's kind of crazy thought so what we do know is that stephen crawford's dna was found near arliss perry's Perry's body we but we don't know what exactly happened or why it happened he was never obviously arrested some people still think that that it was like that she was followed by a cult member to California was murdered in the church and then the security guard found her and was like hey I think that's ridiculous Mm -hmm. I think he did it obviously okay help me understand this door so is it a lie he didn't find the door forced open or he forced it open from the inside to make it look like there was forced entry but he's stupid and did it from the inside like what he died before we could getting all these answers yeah but i mean did the police find the door the way that he said it was uh no not from what i can tell so i think that what happened was that he so what i read was that he called the police and said like something like we've got a stiff one and so and they like understood what that meant and they came you had said that to me i never would have I never would have let go of that theory. (laughs) I know. Um, And he had already, like, opened all the doors and stuff when they got there. And so he told them, like, well, when I got here, it looks like the door was, like, forced open from the inside. Um, Maybe not badly enough where they needed to see it. Why would that be helpful to him? For it to be forced open from the inside? Like, was it just to create so much, like, confusion? Is, I'm not, I really, like, I really hadn't thought about it until you started asking me all those questions, and I was like, well, I know it's a lie. Yeah. I don't want to tell her it's all a lie. Well, I was a little confused about why you would forget that part. Or, like, you were like, oh, I forgot to put that in. And I'm like, Mary, that's vital. I did actually forget to put that in. No, I know, but it's because it's not actually vital. Because it's not true. Um, but... I'm just, like, wondering, 
like if you're trying to make it seem like some I mean and, and maybe he's thinking what I was thinking which is like I'll make it seem like someone that I locked them in and then they mm-hmm. had to break out right although that's not how locks work which is why I was hesitant to, to even ask that but you would think you could just say sign a forced entry but I guess if you say sign a forced entry you have to like prove it like you would yeah there'd have to be something broken in the lock or like I don't know and I actually I, I said that he had quit working at Stanford but I think he was actually fired I know for a fact that he was like stealing things mm. I think Maybe and... he breaks into the church to steal sometimes, and this time he found a girl and was like, He doesn't hey. have to break in because he has a key because he's the security guard. Still breaking in if he's not supposed to be there. He is supposed to be there. Well, he's not supposed to be inside at 4 o'clock. Like, he's using his key inappropriately at that point. But he said it didn't look like anything was stolen. I bet he said that because he's always the one stealing. Mm-hmm. I didn't have time to steal nothing this time because I was too busy killing that girl. So nothing was stolen today. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um. Definitely was him. Go with my gut. I will say. That man did not. I do. Also I a crime. If he found a dead body and ejaculated next to her. Yeah. Similarly a I crime. <laughs> That's fucked up, but is it fucked up enough that you would kill yourself? No. No. Um, I I do think when I first watched the Sons of Sam docuseries, I do think I was very compelled by the, like, Arliss Perry stuff, but I think it was more because I had already become invested in the case. Mm. And I was like, oh my god, like, I know that case. Like, that's mm. so crazy that, that's the, that, that there's this connection. And after like really researching it i was like okay this like maury terry guy he really wants this cold to exist like Mm -hmm. so badly um i don't know if you've seen the show Mm -mm. but it is literally just him asking david berkowitz question after question after question like to prove that this cult is real and it's never like to him just being like so tell me your experience he's like and so when you were in the cult did you witness sacrifices? Mm-hmm. You did, didn't you? Like, that's how he asks it. Yeah. And so, of course, David Berkowitz, who we've already established, is likely mentally ill and is also spending his whole life in prison, doesn't have shit to do, mm-hmm. and probably would like to, to get a little of this uh, taken off of him, mm-hmm. is like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, he, mentally ill or seeking, seeking attention. So yeah. either way, he's like, yeah. That's an interesting story. That's great. Yeah. I do think that the stuff about the Carr brothers is interesting, but... And I, I'm not saying that, that there's there, there wasn't a cult. I'm just saying I don't think that they had anything to do with Arliss Perry's death. Yeah. And I also don't think that David Berkowitz was just a scout for them. No. I don't think I so. I think that he shot those people. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of a two for one. Wow. That was crazy. A wild ride. I, I don't like you tricking me, though. I know. I just want all the information up front, please. I know. <laughs> I like, so the first time, like I said, I listened to this on Crime Junkie for the first time. 
and I went back and re-listened to it while I was researching, and I realized that the episode was only 20 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, shit, there's not a lot of... There's not as much information on this case as I thought there was. But then I was like, I also heard about it on Sons of Sam. So let me... And that's not something that was mentioned on Crime Junkie at all. So I was like, let me tell it a different way. Yeah. With all that, the confusion. They also, when they talked for. about the um, John Arthur Gautreau mm. murders, they just said, like, there had been other murders near Stanford. And then they just moved on. So I was like, let me let me tell you why they thought that was interesting. Yeah. So. I feel like I got a little more detail. Yeah. That was good. I mean, not good, um, but... Yeah, my next case is going to be more of, like, a mystery. Yeah. Did you see it? I saw your images. And you were like, what the fuck is this? I'm not excited, I won't lie to you. But, so I was going to ask you, since it isn't a crime, Mm -hmm. should we do the Ruby Frankie bonus episode that week? That'll be two weeks from now? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Is it going to be a regular length? I don't know. Okay. I I imagine it probably won't be. Okay. I mean, we could either, if it's going to be short, we could either do, like, both in one episode and just make it long, or we could do that Friday release, then Saturday do, like, release Saturday the Ruby Frankie YouTube or whatever. Honestly, what I might do, I might need to look at the Oakville blobs and then decide if I should even cover it. If you think it's fine, then that's fine. I know, but it might but it might just be like, there are these blobs, people don't know what they are. Have you not started writing? No. Oh, okay. That's what I'm saying. So maybe when I get into the research of it, I'll realize that it's not enough Okay. to write about. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, I just feel like we've done a lot of mutilation lately. Mm Mm-hmm. And... I I thought that it was interesting. Yeah. But we'll see. Criminal blobs. Mm-hmm. They could be. Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. We have no idea. We have no idea. Alrighty. We'll be back next week. And I'm so yeah. excited. You're so excited? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I remember. See you then. <laughs> With Patrick Starr. Yeah. Bye. Bye.